Taken as my text this morning, dear congregation, just the very first verse, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now you might think that I'm starting a new series on the book of James this morning, but I'm not. That's not my intent. We are still in the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts, we've come to that point in the history of God's people where the other books and letters of the New Testament begin to fit in. And James is the first such letter that now fits into this section uh, where, we're, uh, where we're at in our history uh, as we study the book of Acts. Now, I want to bear in mind also, uh, dear friends, that this is a preparatory sermon for our celebration of the Lord's Supper in the coming week. And I hope to say something about that, too, in our point of application. So the book of James, then, is a, a book that fits in this history as we've come to it now in the book of Acts. And let's consider, then, the situation of the church in the book of Acts. Now, in the book of Acts, you'll remember that the Christians are, for the most part, fleeing. God has poured out his spirit upon, the, uh, upon his people on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Remember, that all took place in Jerusalem. And then as the church grew, as miracles were performed, and the church grew startlingly fast, you'll remember that Saul spearheaded a persecution of the Christian people. And now the people are scattering in all directions into Judea. Philip goes to Samaria. And we considered last time that some of these people went as far as Cyprus. They went as far as the city of Tarsus in the north, and even to the city of Antioch. And you remember it's at Antioch where the Christians were first called Christians. So for the most part then, these people and, the, and God's people at, at this time period are not in a happy situation. You can imagine that these people had businesses, they had homes, they had land in the city of Jerusalem or in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And now they've had to flee for their lives. They've had to abandon those businesses. They've had to abandon their land. Perhaps they had very prosperous businesses. You can imagine how, how there'd be even some bitterness in their own heart to think that they had to leave thriving businesses and, and run off for their life and to try to, try to build their, uh, start their life all over again in a new location. Perhaps they had family here or there or wherever, but many of them just fled for their lives and left it all behind only to see, more than likely, other people who didn't profess the name of Jesus, come and take over their land. Perhaps just outright steal it. Again, this is the situation these people are in. You can imagine that they must have had a, a mix of emotions, right? As they, as they considered their lot in life and what they now had to uh, live with, having professed the name of Jesus and now flying for their lives. Now, we haven't reached this far yet in the book of Acts, but I believe in the very next chapter, already you read, uh, this is in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1, that Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church. So now it's not just the Jewish, the, the leadership of the Jewish religion that are chasing and harassing the Christian people, but even Herod himself now begins to try to pick off some of the leaders of this Christian movement. So this is the situation that they're in. They're, they're uh, unsettled, right? They're not living in their homes. They're refugees, basically, and they're fleeing, trying to rebuild their lives. Now, it's in that situation that James takes up his pen and he begins to write. 
and he writes a letter to these fleeing Christians. And I find, my friends, that when you read the letter of James in light of this fact, the letter becomes much more meaningful. This morning, I'd like to consider with you, first of all, James the man. Who was James? How did he come to Christ? And second of all, I'd like to take a look then at the letter that he wrote. So our text is James 1 verse 1, but again, I'd like to really think about the whole letter of James, and especially the the context, the historical context in which it was written, and what James was aiming to do with this letter. This means then, my friends, that James is probably the very first of the New Testament letters to be written before any of the other writings. James is the very first letter to be written by uh, a New Testament letter that we have. Well then, let's back up and consider James the man. Who is James? Now, in the first place, let's be clear that James was not one of the 12 disciples. Children, do you still remember the, the 12 disciple song that you learned sometime, right? Well, you'll know that there are actually two Jameses in the disciples, but neither of them are this James. You have James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, you can read that in, in the list of disciples in in Matthew and Mark, James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus, neither of those are the James that wrote this letter. So he's not one of the twelve. Now what James is, however, is he's a brother of Jesus. He's a sibling. So Joseph and Mary had other children. Uh, by, uh, uh, and these would be brothers. And you can read about that in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Let me just read that for you where some of the people say, is not this the carpenter, referring to Jesus, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? Well, by then we learned that Jesus had brothers and sisters, that there was actually quite a large family there that Mary and Joseph had. James then, this is the James that we're referring to then, the one who was the brother of Jesus the brother of Jesus. Now, Paul also makes reference to that in Galatians 1 and verse 19. In Galatians 1 verse 19, when Paul is talking about his visits to the city of Jerusalem, he says in Galatians 1 19, uh, but I did not see, in other words, on one of these visits that he made to Jerusalem, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So you hear that, right? James is the brother of Jesus. Well, what about James' conversion then? How did James come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you would turn with me, and I would ask that you turn with me to John chapter 7, I want you to see where James was all throughout the life and death of Jesus. He was not a Christian. He was not a Christian at all. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, James was not a believer. And you can see that in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, Jesus is walking in Galilee. And remember, Galilee would have been where his family uh, would have been, in Nazareth. And look at John 7 and verse 3. As he's walking through Galilee, John 7 and verse 3, Therefore his, that is Jesus' brothers, said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. 
For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then the verse 5, so grim, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And you sense there, don't you, in, 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 those, three, in those two previous verses, that, the, that his brothers are even mocking with him. Jesus, if you want to be known, if you, want, if you want to get your face out there so everybody can see you and rejoice in how wonderful a person you are and that you're the great Messiah King come to save his people, then why don't you do your miracles down in Judea where everybody can see you and, of course, where you'll also be arrested and killed, right, by the Jewish leadership. Again, they're mocking, they're scoffing, they're ridiculing him, right? And his brothers, they did not believe in him. And we conclude that James would have been amongst those brothers who were mocking and ridiculing at Jesus and, uh, and taunting him to do his miracles more publicly. So James was not a Christian. Well, how then did James come to know the Lord? And here we have just the smallest of statements. But what a, what a powerful statement, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking in these verses about all the different people that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. In verse 5, he talks about appearing to Cephas, that is to Peter, then to the twelve, then to 500 brethren at once. And then read verse 7 with me. Then he appeared to James. Almost, almost a throwaway comment, isn't it? Then he also appeared to James. But my friends, what a deeply powerful statement that is. This man, James, who ridiculed his brother, who taunted him for his mission, and who was such a strict and observant Jew, there came that time in his life when the risen Lord Jesus Christ visited him and said, James, you're wrong. Your brother Jesus is the Messiah King. <clears throat> Isn't that powerful, my friends, having just seen what Christ did in the life of Paul on the way to Damascus? And now in this little statement, and he appeared also to James, we see another time. When the risen Lord Jesus Christ came down in his love and mercy and corrected someone who was so zealous for the law, so zealous for the traditions of Judaism. And the Lord Jesus Christ came down and said, James, I am the Messiah. I am the Lord. Jesus is the king. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation? In one sense, we wish so strongly that, that God would have chosen to give us more details about that conversation when James was brought to know and to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But God in his wisdom has put a, a, a shroud of privacy over that meeting. Maybe someday we'll know more about that. But at this point, we just know that Jesus Christ in his mercy made a personal appearance to James and brought him to faith in Christ. Hallelujah for the saving mercies of God. Even so, my friends, even so, and I, I've stressed this so many times in this message, James remained a Jew. He remained a religious Jew. Now, he was a Jew who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. But in all other things, he was still a Jew. He practiced all the Jewish rituals. Now, of course, he wouldn't have practiced sacrifice anymore, having come to believe in Jesus. 
But still, even some of the sacrifices he may have done in his ignorance, he may have continued. But all the other Jewish rites and rituals of the Jewish religion, the ceremonies that they, that they prided themselves on, James continued to practice those with a rigid adherence. In fact, the, the traditions that come down to us from the New Testament times is that James was a deeply devout man who spent hours in prayer. He was deeply pious, very stern, a rigid obedience to the Jewish laws and rituals, uncompromising. In fact, my friends, what I would say is James was an Old Testament prophet who believed in Jesus. When you think of the Old Testament prophets, when you think of their uncompromising call to repentance and how sternly they called the people of Israel to, to know their sin and to hate it, that's James. James stands in the tradition of those prophets. And you, you, you can read that so strongly when you read the letter of James. Now, what about the other issue, though, that was burning in those times? What would James have thought about including the Gentiles in the Christian church? Remember, that was the burning issue of the time. In the Christian church, at least. What is the status of these Gentiles? Are they also the people of God? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep Sabbath laws? Do they have to observe the food and dietary laws? Are they allowed to uh, intermingle and associate with Gentiles? It's striking, my friends, that in the letter of James, you find not one syllable about this issue. James says nothing about it. Which leads us to believe, my friends, that James, and this shows you the humanness of the authors of Scripture, probably was not yet on board with that idea, even as he wrote the letter that he wrote and is in the Scripture. Now, why do I say that? Because in Acts chapter 15 is the time that we find that James comes to understand this issue. That Gentiles are to be received into the Christian church without becoming proselytes, without becoming Jews. Again, my friends, we must never think that the, you know, the, that the apostles just snapped their fingers one day and all of a sudden it occurred to them, yeah, the Gentiles should come into the church. That was a long, hard struggle for them. We saw it in the life of Peter, how hard it was for him to come to that realization. And this isn't actually going to come to a head until Acts chapter 15. But very likely when James wrote this letter very early to these fleeing, persecuted people, that was not yet even an issue in his mind. Or, or if it had come up in the Christian church, he at least was not yet even struggling with it or dealing with it in his own mind. So it's interesting, not just what we, what we find in the, book of, in the letter of James, but what we don't find in it. At any rate, my friends, then we can say that God raised up this man, James, to minister to the Jewish Christians, to minister to the Jewish people, even if they weren't Christians. That's why I gave you that quote on the outline from Philip Schaff, the great church historian. He says, he says this wonderfully, the mission of James was evidently to stand in the breach between the synagogue, in other words, the Jewish people and their religion, and the church, in other words, the religion of Christ, and to lead the disciples of Moses gently to Christ. He was the only man that could do it in that critical time of the approaching judgment of the holy city. Remember in the year 70, 
the whole city of Jerusalem is wiped out and destroyed utterly by the Romans. This is probably about the years 40 to 50. As long as there was any hope of a conversion of the Jews as a nation, he prayed for it and made the transition as easy as possible. When that hope vanished, his mission was fulfilled. So, my friends, we see the mercy of God, that he raises up this man, James, specifically to minister to the Jewish people. Just as we saw before that God raised up Paul to minister to the Gentile people, God has a man for his own people, and that's James. This man who, was, who had such a rigid adherence to the Jewish ceremonies and rituals, the Jewish religion in all its parts, God brought him to Christ and raised him up to lead the disciples of Moses to the disciples of Jesus. And again, my friends, we rejoice to see the mercy of God that this man, James, who took longer to come to an awareness of some of these issues like Gentiles in the church, and yet God had a purpose for it. God has a purpose for all these things, my friends. He raises up different people at different times in the church to accomplish a specific task. Paul was the man to go to the ends of the earth. James was the man to go to the disciples of Moses. And God raises up these men to accomplish this mission. Well, let's go on then to the letter of James. The letter that James wrote. And again, I say it, James is a man who stands in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, which is probably why James has never been a very popular letter amongst Christian people. You'll remember that Martin Luther made very negative statements about the letter of James. Now, he was wrong on that. He should not have made those comments. But still, Martin Luther was not shy about saying how he didn't like the book of James. And there's a reason for that, isn't it? The emphasis in James is all on moral living, on righteousness in heart and life, the practice of our life. That is all the emphasis in the book of James. In fact, my friends, sometimes people find it even disturbing. You find nothing in James about the work of Christ as Savior, about the work of Christ as redemption, about the work of Christ and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in, in, in forgiving sin and in, and in bringing people uh, to, a, to, a, to the proper motivation for leading a life of holiness. James says nothing about those things. His letter is purely focused on righteous, moral living. In fact, the name of Christ occurs only twice in, in the letter uh, that I found. And one of them is just in the, in the, verse, the very first verse, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later, he'll say, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality, but only twice. His focus is not on grace and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in forgiving us of our sins. The emphasis of James is purely on righteous moral living. And yet, my friends, for all that, we find more of the teachings of Jesus in the book of letter of James than in almost any other book. James is thoroughly saturated with the teachings of Christ. Let me just give you an example here. Look at James. Have James chapter 1 open in front of you and look at verse 2. So you read verse 2, but I'm going to read something from Jesus. I'm going to read Matthew 5, verse 11. You read James 1, verse 2. Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed or happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
you see, right, how James is, is taking the teachings of Jesus and bringing them out in his letter. Drop down to verses 5 and 6. You read verses 5 and 6. I'll read what Jesus wrote, or what Jesus said. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Again, James is not quoting Jesus directly, but you see very clearly that what James is teaching, he has the words of Jesus in his, in the, in his mind, in the background. One more, look at verse 12. Again, stay in James 1 and look at verse 12. Go ahead and read verse 12. And I'll read Matthew 10, verse 22, where Jesus says, You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And, and my friends, this is the, the, the tiniest little sample uh, in the books of a New Testament introduction that actually introduced these books. Many of the men and scholars who have written those will give a table of all the different times that James references or seems to speak from the teachings of Jesus. And it's a long table. In one book I read it, it's a whole page. James is saturated with the teaching of Jesus. And much of that he says, you can kind of hear the voice of Jesus speaking through the words of James in the letter. Not only the words of Jesus, but even the method of Jesus. Again, stay in chapter 1. The very method of Jesus, you know how Jesus would often take uh, things from life and from nature, and he would use those as illustrations of divine truth. Think of the parables. But look at James. James 1 verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Drop down to verse 10. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass... He will pass away. Notice these, these connections to earthly things. Verse 11, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. And then you have many others as well. I'll just read. Uh, you'll know very, you remember the one in chapter 3 uh, where he talks about, We put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us. He talks about a ship which is, just has a little rudder and yet the whole ship is steered by that little rudder when he's talking about the tongue. And many, many other things where James uses, uh, we might call them object lessons, right? Where he takes an object in nature or in daily life and he draws a spiritual truth from it. Again, exactly how Jesus taught. Again, in so many of these cases, you hear the voice of Jesus in the words of James. Well, my friends, what then is the significance of this letter of James? What is the significance of it? And let's go back again to these fleeing Christians. Again, when you, when you read the letter of James in that context, the book becomes very meaningful and very powerful. So I would ask you this morning to take yourself, put yourself into the shoes of a person who's fleeing persecution. We wouldn't be gathered in this church, obviously, right? We would be down there in the, in the woods somewhere, right? huddling together around a copy of the scriptures. It wouldn't have a beautiful air conditioning, I can tell you that. Or lights, or a beautiful organ and piano, right? We'd be huddled together in small groups trying to hear the word of God. We'd probably post somebody over there and somebody over there to see if anybody's coming, right? To make sure we can stay safe. And as we huddle around the word of God, we read. And we read James. And I just pulled out a few of these verses. And these verses are, 
I mean, every verse takes on meaning when you put it in this context. But now imagine, imagine reading verse 10. Imagine you, and I, I picked this one specifically because we are such a wealthy people, aren't we? But in James 1 and verse 10, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Now, I'm sure there's a great number of people who say, that doesn't sound comforting at all to a persecuted person. But my friends, you don't think like James does. And this is why James is probably, again, not a very popular book with many people. Because James says, when you come into a situation where you've lost your business, you've lost your income, you've lost your pension, all you've got is a few dollars in your pocket. Why, what a great opportunity, says James. What a great opportunity that you've lost all your wealth. Why, you should, you should glory in that humiliation. Because now you've got opportunities. Now you've got opportunities. In fact, if you drop down to uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 27, so the last verse of, of chapter 1, he says, Pure religion, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Why, what a, we could glory in the fact that we've lost our businesses and we've lost our wealth. Because after all, now you have opportunity to, to do real religion, real religion, pure and undefiled religion. You get to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And you'll have a much easier time of keeping yourself unstained by the world, right? Because you won't have all these temptations. You won't have all this wealth. You won't have all these opportunities. Again, when you read that, you think to yourself, wow, James, you know, um, I really don't want to be like that. I don't want to lose my business and lose all my money. But uh, this, is, this is what James is, is teaching. And then let's go to look at James 1 and verse 19. James 1 and verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And again, when I put myself in the shoes of these people who, who've had their land taken by other people, right, because they had to flee so, so quickly, you'd be full of righteous anger, wouldn't you? You'd be full of indignation. I'm going to go back and take that land back. I'm going to go back to the courts. I'm going I'm to get justice. And then to hear James say, well, be slow to anger. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Well, I am angry. They had no right to take my land. And they took my business. Well, says James, slow down a little bit. James 1, verse 27. Oh, I already read this one. Uh, about the pure and undefiled religion. But you can go to James chapter 4. Evidently, as these people were fleeing and being chased, being persecuted, they still found time to quarrel. And in chapter 4 and verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust. And here, think of lust in a very broad way, just general desire. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Evidently, there was a good deal of materialism, even in these people who were fleeing from persecution. And James, like an Old Testament prophet, goes after them. And he, he accuses them of it. 
This is the letter of James. No matter where you turn in the letter, you can literally just let it open and randomly put your finger on a verse in James and guarantee you he's going to be exhorting you and calling you to repentance and convicting you of some sin and very practical. He talks about the tongue. He talks about quarreling. He talks about speech. He talks about all these things. He talks about temptation and what leads us into temptation. He talks about unanswered prayers. All these things. Very practical things. It doesn't matter where you go in the letter. It's always the same kind of exhortation, a summons to repentance. Well, that might not seem very comforting to a persecuted people. But again, God and his providence has chosen to give us the letter of James. You know, I remember a, uh, a writer one time, he, would, he, had, he was writing a letter to some other theologian or Bible teacher, a Bible student, I think it was, a seminary student. And the seminary student was just saying how much he preferred this author to that author. And this wise man wrote and he said, listen, sometimes you've got to eat salt and not always honey. By that he meant the honey is the passages of scripture that we love to read, that we rejoice to read about the grace of God, the work of Christ on our behalf, the, the work of forgiveness that he brings to our life. Those are the things that we love to talk about. We love to read. That's the honey of the gospel, right? It's sweetness to us. But there's also the salt, right? There's also the salt. And don't think of salt not like a, you know, it's a good, nice flavoring, but salt like you would put in the old days into wounds, right? To cleanse. And it hurts. It's painful. Well, James is just such a book, my friends. It's the, it's the side of, of Christianity that maybe we would just as soon rather avoid. And yet how necessary it is, how helpful it is for us to read these convicting portions of Scripture. So James is a prophet. He's a John the Baptist. And he's calling us to search our life, to examine ourselves, and to come to repentance. Well, preparatory week. As we think about applying this, my friends, we think about a week of preparation. May I challenge you then this morning to spend a week with James? I don't know what your particular practice is in preparatory week. But maybe you could think about that. Well, spending a week with James, spending a week reading, praying over, and sifting through these different verses, these exhortations that James gives. Probably won't be a pleasant week. Probably won't be a very pleasant week, would it? Be more like salt rather than honey. And yet for all that, it could be a very blessed and edifying week. When God would, you might say, strip us bare. When God would take the knife of his own convicting laws and cut us off from all our own righteousness, from any thought that we have arrived, that we have achieved something. You see, my friends, our outward behavior is a window into the state of our heart. James teaches us that as well. In James chapter 2, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, hear him carefully, right? He's not saying that in order to be saved by Christ, we have to have faith and works, and then Christ will save us. No, we're saved only by faith, only by faith in Christ alone. But what kind of faith is that, my friends? 
You see, there's so much deceptive. There's false faith. There's a faith that is not a true faith. And James wants us to know that the true faith is the faith that produces good works in the life of God's people. Saved by faith alone. But my friends, saved only by a true saving faith. Not by a fraudulent faith. Not by a faith that's only in our mouth or only in our head. But saved by a real, genuine faith. Now that real, genuine faith, says James, is a faith that produces a real, practical effect in the life of our, of, in, our, in our lives. To put it very simply, my friends, our faith makes us better people. It makes us to be good. If your faith does not bring you to that place where you become a better person, and again, James understands that very practically, your tongue, how you speak, how you relate to others, how you serve, your prayer life, the level of humility, all these things, you'll find them all over the pages. If you spend a week with James, you'll come across it, believe me. And James says, that's the power of true saving faith in the life of God's people. It is not what justifies us, never. Only the work of Christ justifies us, only. But the faith that joins us to Christ is a true faith. And we know that it's a true faith by the effects that it has in our life. That's how we know it's the genuine article and not some kind of fraud. And that's why the book of James is so useful in a week of preparation. Let me put it this way to you, friends. Let me put it to use to you. When that table is spread in the coming week, if we spent a week with James, that bread there will look all the sweeter. And that blood, that wine which is poured out, representing the blood of Christ, your own heart will be crying for it. Your own heart will be saying, apart from that blood, apart from that broken body, I'm a lost soul. And that's the way to approach the communion table, my friends. You see, so many times we approach the communion table thinking like this, I've examined myself the week past, I've examined myself, and I think, even though I'm not perfect, I think I measure up, so I think I can take that bread and that wine. My friends, what a wretched way to come to the table. This table, my friends, is only for those who do not measure up. This table is for those who are broken and lost sinners and who cannot find their life in themselves, who fail every test that's given them. And now they come to this table to testify that I have nothing in myself. I'm a lost soul in myself. If it was just me and James, I would go to hell forever. But now with that broken body and that shed blood there, now there I have a hope that my sins can be forgiven and that I can be reconciled to God. My friends, are, are there those people in our midst this day? Are there those kind of people going to gather with us next week when that table is spread and when that bread goes out into the congregation? Are there those who can say, I've, I've, I've gone through the book of James and I fail every, pay, every verse, every chapter cuts me to shreds. You don't have a righteousness of your own. Well, praise God, my friends, there's a righteousness here for you. A perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ that comes and that he imputes to us by faith when our sins are forgiven because of what he did on the cross. What a blessed truth. I put the Heidelberg Catechism on there, my friends, just to reinforce this idea. Who should come to the Lord's table? Now, don't misread it. I know we're quick to say those who are pleased with themselves. But look what our author says. Our instructor says, those who are displeased with themselves 
because of their sins. Do you want to come to that place this week, my friends? Spend a week with James. It won't be a pleasant week, but it will be such a blessed week, such an edifying, such a healthy week for us. Just like when we go to the physician, you know that children, right? When you go to the doctor, it's not always pleasant. He cuts or he pokes or he, he has to give you a shot, right? These things are not pleasant, and yet they're healthy for us. And in the same way, what a blessed and happy thing it would be to spend a week with James. My friends, I move quickly to my second application because the catechism continues. Who should come to the Lord's table? Well, yes, those who are displeased with themselves, but let's not stop there. But who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Well, this is, this is the people for whom that table is spread. And I put on my second point here a godly sorrow because when I was preparing this, I thought about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, I know I wrote you a severe letter. It was a letter that moved you to tears. It was a letter that made you feel poorly about yourself. But he says, I don't regret it because that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And that repentance leads to life. My friends, if we spend a week with James and we just sit down and we think, well, now I'm such a sinner and I've failed on so many places that I'll never even step foot through the church door again and I'll certainly never attend the Lord's table and participate in that sacrament because after all, I'm, I'm too terrible a sinner. Again, we, we covered that already when we talked about the law this morning. That's the devil speaking. But in the gospel, my friends, there's a pathway to forgiveness because of what was laid on, but what, what will be laid on that table in the coming week. That broken bread and that poured out wine testifies that there is a way of forgiveness, that there is a way of atonement, and that all the sins that James makes us feel so badly about, that they can be forgiven, and we can find a place back to God again. I have to stop. I should have stopped much earlier. We still are going to read the form for the administration. So before we close the sermon, let's turn in our forms and prayers book to the to the to the form given to us for uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper on page 37. <clears throat> and again, we'll just read this first part and then we'll be finished. So the celebration of the Lord's Supper, form number one, page 37. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort. It is necessary to examine ourselves fully, and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely his remembrance. 
The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face and whether they, with full sincerity, strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy, and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity, all those then who are of this mind God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters. Those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature. Those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition. All those who despise God, his word, and his holy sacraments. All blasphemers, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state. All perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority. All murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors. All adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robster, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper, so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to this supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness. But on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Well, let's come before the Lord then in prayer. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this service. And Lord, we pray for that, for that convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We know, Lord, that it's not a pleasant work, and yet it is an eminently healthy work that is something that is meant for our own salvation, to strip us of our own righteousness, to tear from us any thought that we somehow can measure up, and to bring us to that place, Lord, where we take our place with that publican 
who only could cry, Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord, bring us to that place. Bring us in the coming week to come to church with that thought in our mind that I am displeased with myself because of my sins. Yet, for all that, I trust that my sins and my remaining weaknesses are covered by the blood of Christ. And let us take the sacrament in that spirit and with that faith, with that mind. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then as we return to our homes now. We pray for a good time of fellowship together with the church. And we pray, Lord, that we may return this evening ready to sit again under your word and to hear its joyful proclamation. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the hymn book now to number 79. 79. And we'll sing just the first verse. Just the first verse of number 79. Send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Oh, let them bring me to thy holy hill. So number, uh, number 79, just the first verse in the blue hymnal. the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.